Well, greetings, friends, family. It is the weekend of Sunday, February the 28th. And today we will be in Colossians, the second chapter, verses 8 through 15. I'm reading from the ESV version. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be wholly pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So our scripture today deals with the terrible danger of being spiritually deceived. You know, we are all well aware there are impersonators, con artists. I once heard of a farmer whose horses kept slobbering over everything. He saw an advertisement in a farm magazine offering a cure for this for a fee of $20. So he scraped together the money and wrote asking for the secret. In return, he received a very thin envelope containing a single sheet of paper on which were the words written, teach your horses to spit. You know, we, we laugh at that kind of deceit, but what is happening to many of us today is not funny at all. In Colossians chapter 8 of verse 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. You know, there's much, there's a lot in that. There's a lot packed in that short verse. And Paul obviously sees these Colossian Christians whom he has commended and encouraged up to this point in the letter as facing a great danger of being taken captive by false teaching. Actually, the word is kidnapped. They are in danger of being kidnapped by error. And so to bring this up to date, we would say that they were in danger of being taken hostage. Paul sees a like danger facing Christians who are taken captive by wrong philosophy, wrong teaching, false doctrine. Such can deprive believers of their Christian liberty and, and actually hold them in hostage for years, if not for the rest of their lives. And the weapon that is used to do this is philosophy. And that sounds rather harmless. After all, philosophy means simply the love of wisdom. What could be wrong with loving wisdom? We are all much indebted 
to the philosophers of the past, to Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and others. Their insights into the nature of reality and life. The love of wisdom is a good thing in, in, in many cases. There are good and bad philosophies. But what Paul has in mind here is the danger Colossians are facing, the Colossians are facing of being seduced by bad philosophy. What was wrong with the philosophy that endangered them? Well, first, Paul says it's hollow. It was empty teaching. When they got to the heart of the teaching, he is referring to that, that they would discover that it had no real content, no actual basis in reality. So false philosophies are without content. They are sheer illusion. But and here is, is their second characteristic. They can deceive many. They are deceitful and misleading. They may sound good. They may be followed widely, but they are mental detours leading many astray. And when, when, when we examine them closely, we discover that they are empty and exploitive. Communism and capitalism, too, are philosophies, and both have elements of non-reality about them. John Kenneth Galbraith describes the difference between them like this. Under capitalism, man exploits man. Under communism, it's exactly the reverse. Both are somewhat wrong, is the point. Neither reflects truth in its ultimate form. The apostle Paul goes on to point out three things that are always characteristic of wrong philosophy. They were true of, of the specific philosophy that was endangering the Colossians, and we'll look at that in, in, in some more detail later on in this study. But they are equally true of, of bad doctrine in any age or generation. And here then are the three things to watch for. First of all, according to Paul, these empty decept deceptive philosophies depend on human tradition. So they arise out of the thinking of men. They find a foothold in society and then are passed along from gener generation to generation. So it, they appear popular and widely supported. Hardly anyone dares to question them because everybody believes them. Do, do we recognize this tactic? It appears that the finest minds and the best scholarship are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christianity is a myth and that it is only a tiny minority of blind fundamentalists who believe it. So here's one of the great scholars of all time. Albert Schweitzer's quest for the historical Jesus is still considered a classic in this field. So Schweitzer said that Jesus claimed none of the things that the church or theologians have claimed for him over the centuries. Schweitzer said to live in the spirit of love is to live in the spirit of Jesus, which is to be Christian. And Schweitzer said being a Christian doesn't have to do with believing anything. Some people say you have to believe these doctrines or these creeds before you can be a Christian. Well, the doctrines and creeds are all man-made. That is the gospel according to Schweitzer. So do we see how it confirms what Paul says? In every generation, theological era takes this kind of form. An attempt is always made to make it appear that biblical Christianity is a minority faith held only by a few ill-educated, almost mentally deficient people who have no basis in scholarship for what they believe. 
And what a confirmation of what Paul says. Hollow and deceptive philosophy rests on human traditions. That is what is wrong. It sets aside the revelation of God disclosing himself to his people and undermines that revelation by claiming superiority for the guesses and the conclusions of the inadequate mind of man. The second thing that Paul charges is wrong with hollow and deceptive philosophy is that it depends on the basic principles of this world. Now, there's a debate among scholars as to whether that is a, a, a right translation. The word for principles here, or as it is sometimes trans, translated, elements, literally means things in a row, a series of things. The word became associated with um, the alphabet because letters in an alphabet are always lined up in a row. You see, we learn a language by first learning the ABCs. So some scholars feel that this word represents something simple, elementary, basic principles. That's the idea. Other scholars, however, point out that this word is also used with reference to an army of soldiers lined up in a row in ranks, a hierarchy. So these scholars feel that it is a reference to fallen angels, that it is a parallel passage to Paul's statement in Ephesians 6, where he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, wicked spirits in high places, whom he also calls the rulers of this world's darkness. In Galatians, Paul calls them weak and beggarly elements, and clearly states the Galatians are serving those which by nature are not gods. So which view is right? Are these rudimentary, fundamental or elementary principles of life, or are they the teaching of the world rulers of this present darkness? Well, I think perhaps both viewpoints are true. You see, a lot of times when a scriptural phrase has double meaning, both meanings are actually intended. We, we have a hard time with that. We think it has to be one or the other, when, when really it's, it's both. Perhaps that is true here. The philosophies that Paul describes or any wrong, incorrect philosophy in the realm of religion or the spirit fits the description of what Paul calls in 2 Timothy doctrines of demons. They are elementary, rudimentary truths perpetuated by some demonic power among human beings, which have the effect of returning people to childish actions, childish views of life. Have you ever noticed how easily grown-ups can begin to act like children? Such actions offend us, and we say, you know, despairingly, don't be so childish, until, of course, we behave the same way. And then we justify our behavior on some other basis. See, what happens, for instance, is when we set a plate of cake in the midst of, of a group of children, they all grab for the biggest piece, but take a special stock option, right, uh, some 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 amazing investment, make it available to a group of businessmen, and well, and they too are going to grab for the biggest piece. They they act like children. Children love to to show off. They are they're strutting around, seeking to get our attention, and telling us of of what they've done. They want they want us to be aware of them. But we've heard grown ups talk like that too. Of course, we have. It's rudimentary, it's elementary, it's childish conduct. Children love to dominate others. 
to order them around, to tell them what to do. Well, hey, guess what? Grownups love to do that too. Children easily fight amongst themselves and argue. Watch a crowd of people arguing over some difference of opinion. Not that that's happened in the last year. Not that, not that we argue about COVID-19, a higher minimum wage, or whatever, where to wear, whether mask work or not. No, we don't argue about that at all. And certainly not in the church, we don't argue about that. All of this is a representation of what Paul is describing. It is childish behavior. Nations and governments often act this way. International affairs are conducted on this basis. When we are removed from it, we can see how childish and foolish it is. And Paul reveals that this behavior is inspired by world rulers of this present darkness, wicked spirits of high places. There's no other explanation for the evil of humanity that is in accordance with reality. Yet that explanation is so often regarded as ridiculous, even laughable. You know, Christians and others who hold it are often uh, intimidated and do not want to admit that they believe these things as wicked spirits in high places. But everywhere in the scripture, from the lips of Jesus himself and from the pens of, of all the apostles, this is the clear teaching of the Bible. The reason why some of the great schools and universities, which started out as Christian, soon lost their Christian emphasis, is because people began to give heed to the traditions of men based upon basic rudimentary, rudimentary principles of life that are constantly fed into the stream of human thinking from the demonic beings who controls the minds of men. That is the biblical position, not mine, not yours, something higher than us, the biblical position. We can believe it as biblical truth or not. But there's a third problem with false doctrine. It is, in Paul's words, not according to Christ. You see, evil teaching always focuses on demoting Jesus, refusing to recognize the full revelation of his being as set out in the, in the Bible. Every cult attacks the person or the work of Jesus, or both. They claim that he was nothing but a very good man, a model man, perhaps, although he lacked the insights into life and reality that are ours through modern knowledge. So they they put him down, they demote him, or going to the opposite extreme, they regard Jesus as a supernatural being, one among several divine masters who come you know, every so often into human affairs to teach us amazing truths that we would never otherwise know. And which, if we followed, will release in us great divine powers, too. This is the teaching of the New Age mo- movement, by the way. But, but these cults never view Jesus as God himself, willing to die in our place. So any form of religious error, then, will have these three manifestations. They are supported by human tradition. They establish themselves as the only respectable doctrine to believe and put everything uh, contrary down, and yet they come from the minds of satanic beings who cleverly but invisibly reduce people to childish behavior and childish attitudes, all to the end of setting aside the glory and the true character of Jesus Christ. So now Paul begins his response to this, and his answer is not along the lines that I would ordinarily think. When confronted with evil teaching, most of us attack it and try to point out what is wrong with it. Makes sense, right? But Paul does not do that. 
Look at what Paul does. He reviews for the Colossian Christians what they already have in Jesus. You see, he calls them back to the truth and sets it vividly before them in five amazing statements, the first of which is found in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have this fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. Everywhere in Scripture, we find this approach. Everywhere, we are to be looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We must focus again and again upon who he is. Then the mind and the heart are both protected against the assault of an evil teaching. Here, Paul reminds the Colossians that they, have all, that they already have everything that they need if they have Jesus. They have God for in Christ dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. All of God is present when Jesus is there. This does not mean that Jesus is both the Father and the Son. Scripture never teaches that. But the fullness of God, the whole Godhead comes into our life when we receive Jesus. That is the mystery. What more do we need? That is Paul's question. What more can these false teachers add to that? What new experience, what other additional divine person can we receive than what we already received when we have Jesus? It may be that we need to discover more of what it means to have Jesus in our heart. And that, friends, is a lifelong process. We're always to be growing an appreciation of what it means to have him. But the point is, and it's a very important one, we do not need anything more than we already have. We merely need to understand more of what we have received. And that is where Paul begins his response. Having made the statement that they have in Christ already received all that God is and nothing can be added, Paul now traces how this happened to them. And in the next four statements, he tells how believers share in the fullness of God in Christ. First, he declares that they were circumcised with him. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. That's verse 11. That's an amazing statement. You see, a lot of scholars equate circumcision with baptism holding that Christian baptism has taken the place of the Old Testament rite of circumcision. But if you look carefully at this verse, it's clear that that's not, that's not true. If we're Christians, Paul says, we have been both circumcised and baptized. So they're obviously you're not the same thing. So if we look at the Spanish word macho, macho stands for proud confidence in one's own ability. It means self-centered egoism. And that is what we have become in the fall. The man, of course, stands for the whole race, male and female alike. And the male foreskin is a picture God has employed to teach us that egoism. The sinful pride within us is hidden to us. We do not see anything wrong with it. But when a male is circumcised, it is a symbolic way of saying that what is hidden is now revealed. The wrongness of it is exposed so that we can see what it really is. Fallen humanity is revealed for what it really is. 
So when Jesus was crucified, the sin that he assumed on our behalf was removed. That's the point. It is what Scripture calls the circumcision of the heart. So observe how Paul explains that here. In him you were circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature. The foreskin of the flesh is a symbol of the fallen nature, the flesh within us. And when we, we, when we become a Christian, it is revealed for what it truly is, worthless in God's sight. It does not advance us or help us in any way in his sight. To be proud and independent, sinfully selfish will never help us find our value in God's sight. That is why the scripture says plainly that they are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus himself said, without me, you can do nothing. The natural life, the old Adamic life is of no value anymore. So then Paul moves to the next step, which is baptism. In baptism, he declares, we were buried with him and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. That's verse 12 of chapter 2. That is what baptism means. Circumcision symbolizes the death of Jesus and our death with him, our dying to sin, as Romans 5 and 6 argues, but baptism stands for our new life with him. When someone is immersed in the waters of baptism, they're not left there. They're brought out again to a new life. That's what baptism reflects, the work of, of the Spirit giving new life in Jesus, a new humanity. The human spirit is made alive. It is the difference between a true Christian and someone prof merely profession, professing to be a Christian. The true believer has been made alive in Christ. They have a whole new basis for living. And the third step in the process of sharing Christ is given next in verse 14. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So here Paul declares the forgiveness of sins for which the law and the written code with its regulations condemned us. That condemnation is now removed by the death of Jesus on our behalf. He paid for all our sins. The sins that we committed in the past, the sins we're going to commit today, and the sins that we're going to commit tomorrow and in the future. Sin is no longer an issue in our relationship with God. It affects our fellowship, but not our relationship. He has fully dealt with it. We need to acknowledge our sin in order to enter into the benefit of that forgiveness. But forgiveness is already there in the heart of God. What an amazing truth. I, I do not think that I, I, I rejoice in anything more than the fact that my sins, my mistakes, my failures, my unloving words, my unkind attitudes, my selfish actions, they've all been forgiven. Every day God gives me a new slate, a new unspoiled day to live through by his grace. Our sins have been forgiven. Paul sees them as nailed to the cross, so they no longer can, can condemn us. The law is not done away with, but the condemnation of it is. We are made free and told, go and sin no more. And then the last step, we are freed from the power of these evil beings. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
These are the world rulers of darkness, the clever, male- um, ma- malevolent, ma- malign- malignant beings who keep inserting into human thinking wrong ideas, dangerous thoughts, attitudes, and teachings that set us uh, against each other and make us go for one another's throat, keeping enmity and strife stirring in the human family. What has happened to them? Well, Paul declares that when Jesus died, he seized these powers by the throat. He chained them and he dragged them in triumph behind him. Like a Roman general marching through the streets of Rome, his chained captives walking behind completely at his will. That is what John can say. That is why John can say, greater is he that is in you than is in the world. There is no need, therefore, to give way to evil teaching or evil temptations, for we have a power and a person within us who is superior to anything that Satan can throw against us, the world, the flesh, or the devil. That's the teaching of this passage. Paul is encouraging the Colossians to see that there is absolutely no need to believe the doctrines, the teachings, or the rituals that he will next kind of announce to them. And neither do we need to believe them. If we understand who we are in Christ and what we have in him, there is no need to be weak, faltering, or failing. We can rise up and be the men and women that God intended and intends for us to be. Jude 24 through 25 says, as the doxology, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And God bless.